Welcome to Milk Drunk by Bobby, a straight-up conversation about parenthood without the BS. We'll be featuring parenting experts, people you may recognize, and some others you might be meeting for the first time. Milk Drunk is brought to you by Bobby, the mom-founded and led organic formula brand evolving the conversation around how we choose to feed our babies. Our goal is to have open and honest conversations that make parents feel less alone. Think group chat energy, but I'm not going to text you an Instagram reel about a Facebook mom group chat that was on TikTok last month. I'm your host, Angelica Temple, and today's episode is all about reframing where equality begins. We'll dive into how our country is so behind compared to other countries and why that is, hint, hint, our patriarchal society, and what we can do, hint, hint, paid family leave for all. As parents in the U.S., we receive little to zero postpartum support from our government compared to a majority of countries around the world. That includes how we support parents through pregnancy, postpartum care, childcare, and beyond. Now, why are all these things so important to talk about? It's because they all stem from equality within the home. First up, we'll talk with author and sociologist Anna Malika Tubbs on how the public support of mothers and primary caregivers is the cornerstone of an equal society. After that, we're headed to New Zealand to chat with Isabel Benish, who has spent years researching birth and postpartum practices around the world through her platform, Atlas of Motherhood. Let's get into it. Welcome back to Milk Drunk. Today, we are thrilled to be talking with educator, advocate, mother, and New York Times bestselling author, Anna Malika Tubbs. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I love your book. I love the concept of it. It's amazing. Before we get started, I would love for you to share a little bit about yourself, your work as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. And because I have a serious case of wanderlust, I would love to hear a list of all the places you grew up. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. Um, Well, first, yes, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be in conversation together. And a little bit about me, I uh, was born and raised all over the world. So I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But as a result of my parents' work and very specifically my mom's job as a lawyer who advocated for women's rights in the U.S. as well as abroad, I spent my life traveling from country to country. So after New Mexico, I was in Dubai and then we were in Estonia and then Sweden and after that Azerbaijan um oh then <laughs> Mexico actually Mexico was before Azerbaijan um and then we moved back to the United States when I was a teenager and okay. lived in what I call the most exotic place of all Laramie Wyoming and we can get into that if we want to later. <laughs> different world, different planet. Yeah, Very different. <laughs> and then I went to boarding school in Indiana because my parents were going to go abroad oh. again. Um, okay. So I had this awesome experience there and then moved to California for undergrad um, and went to Stanford for my bachelor's degree. I know you wanted a short answer, but it's just I want not it. possible I with want me. I all of this. <laughs> I want the full geographical list. I am perfect. here for it. Perfect. Okay. So after Stanford, I moved to England because I did my graduate work at the University of Cambridge. So I did my Amazing. master's there in gender studies, and then I did my PhD in sociology most recently. So um, kind of still all over the place, but now settled in Los Angeles with my husband and my two kiddos. That's awesome. 
How did your global upbringing influence your advocacy work, especially around motherhood? Yeah, it's inextricable from it, really. My view of what's possible for women, what's possible for all people is definitely influenced by the fact that I've seen so many different ways of living and loving and believing in this world, that there's not just one truth to anything, but that there are multiple different ways of approaching any given situation, but especially when we're thinking about policy. Um, Mm -hmm. And so kind of going back to my mom, she often spoke about mothers and how mothers were being treated in each of the places that we lived. And she could relate everything back to the treatment of mothers. So -hmm. she would often say, you know, if mothers are being treated well, meaning if they're given the supports that they deserve, if they are um, being supported, if they're seen with the respect that they deserve, mm-hmm. then this country will do well on kind of every other indicator. And the same was true, vice versa, that if mothers were being denied treatments that they deserved, yeah. if they were being ignored, then that country also would not be able to kind of reach the goals that they might have, whether that was economically or in several other um, – with several other factors. So that's kind of – the influence of my understanding of what's yeah. possible for I mean, women that, and mothers. Just that perspective. Like when you say it, I'm nodding. Like, of course, this makes a ton of sense. Everything maps perfectly. And yet also while you're saying it, I've never heard it before. <laughs> yeah. And no, exactly. And I grew up with it. So it's so yeah. interesting because I always saw mothers as incredibly influential and powerful mm-hmm. and that their role really was – what would dictate the rest of, of everything that came after them. Yeah. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. Like you said, of course, those who are leading our households, our first caretakers, our first teachers, um, their experiences are going to translate into the experience of their community. Obviously, you are a mother. You were influenced by your mother. And your first book is called The Three Mothers. Yeah. Where a you lot of mother, mother, mother. A lot of mother. <laughs> I'm, I love it. I love it. So much mother energy. Um, in your book, you tell the stories of the women who raised and shaped three of America's most pivotal civil rights heroes, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. You do this while also addressing current gender and race issues in the U.S. So tell us more about this juxtaposition. What made you dive deeper into the stories of these mothers? How did you find them? Yeah, such a great question. I should say that I started writing this work before I became a mom myself. So I really think it's important that people pay attention to the stories of mothers, whether Mm -hmm. you want to become a mother or not, whether um, you identify as someone who can be a birthing parent or not. It doesn't matter. We all need to be concerned about the stories of mothers and the issues of mothers. Um, And so the reason I decided to write about this is I watched Hidden Figures and then went on to read the book um, Mm -hmm. by Margot Lee Shetterly. And I was so blown away by her research and her ability to really challenge what we'd been talking about in history and how we had been getting everything wrong, basically, because we'd ignored certain people in American history, very specifically Mm -hmm. Black women um, and Black mothers. Um, And I realized that I wanted to be somebody who found other hidden figures. Um, And I wanted to really think about a book that celebrated Black mothers that brought the largest audience to the table. And so I was kind of narrowing down my options from there um, and thinking about the civil rights movement because Mm -hmm. we come back to it often in our policy decisions. We come back to it in our conversations constantly. Um, But unfortunately, we still speak about it from such a male perspective um, as if men are the only ones we, we should be celebrating in this history. And so I wanted to kind of 
address that um, and also play with the patriarchy on purpose, kind of bring people into the work if they wanted to learn more about MLK Jr. or Malcolm X right, or if right. they because or because they wanted to learn more about black mothers or black women. Yeah. But regardless of them, why they came to the work, they would walk away knowing three black women's names that they might not have known before. I said, okay, for sure, it's going to be MLK Jr.'s mother. And then, of course, putting Malcolm X in conversation with him. I decided on Burtis Baldwin, my third mother, James Baldwin's mother, when I watched I Am Not Your Negro. Um, This was a documentary that was based off of James Baldwin's writings. And especially thinking of his identity as a proud, queer Black man at a Mm -hmm. time when that was incredibly dangerous, I was really curious about his relationship with his mom. And if that had anything to do with his courage, Um, and it turns out it really did. So Mm -hmm. there was very little out there about them before I wrote this book. Um, So this is, for the most part, my original research. Um, And it's really been my honor to make sure the world knows that these women did everything that their sons became famous for long before their sons were even a thought in their minds. It's so amazing. You mentioned that you weren't a mother yet when you started writing this, but I think you were pre- you got pregnant or became pregnant right in the process. Yeah. So it was really a kind of either divine or bizarre thing, however we want to talk yeah. about it. I was in the middle of researching uh, these three women. I had the book deal. Um, and then my husband and I were expecting our firstborn. And it was really powerful um, because my experience of motherhood is intertwined with my research for this book. Mm -hmm. Um, On some ends, it was incredibly scary because a lot of the fears that the women I write about, Alberta, Burtis, and Louise, felt as Mm -hmm. Black mothers in the 1920s um, were fears that were still persistent today for me Mm -hmm. and for other Black mothers. Without doing this intense research, I don't know if I would have been fully aware of the issues and the dangers, Mm -hmm. but also what I might be able to do, um, not only to make it a different experience for myself, but for other people as well. I'd really love to hear a little bit more from you about, you know, how getting into these topics affects your everyday life. Yeah, I love that. So as a sociologist, um, we often think about our first society being the family. Mm -hmm. Um, The first Mm -hmm. society that you're going to be exposed to is the people who are raising you, the way they organize their household, um, Mm -hmm. who and what they value in that household is going to be the first and most influential society in your Mm -hmm. life. And when we think about that, you first, as partners even, who might be leading that society, so let's think Mm -hmm. about parents, um, Mm -hmm. heteronormative or not, you're going to be showcasing an example to your children of what society should look like or what Mm -hmm. you believe society should look like. So Mm -hmm. my husband and I often talk about this. You know, if I say to him, do you believe that women deserve equality um, or equity? Uh, And you say yes to that, then why am I managing all of these tasks? (laughs) And you're maybe not even aware of what I'm contributing. Or if you believe, you know, that Um, our son and daughter should have equal opportunities outside of this house, then why might we at times treat our son differently than our daughter? So these are questions that you constantly have to ask yourself um, in your household. What society are you um, trying to emulate? What society are you trying to create? 
um, it's not only something to, um, you know, be critical of yourself. It's also so that you can applaud yourself when you're mm-hmm. reimagining what things can look like, when you're presenting options that are revolutionary. I love that. I love thinking about your family as the first society, you know, from which you're coming into the rest of the world. Your next book is about patriarchy, the patriarchal society we live in. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I don't I don't know if I need to ask why, but talk to me <laughs> more about why this is your next book and what you're going to be getting into. Yeah. So I was really thinking about this like shock that people experience. And at the same time, um, Roe v. Wade was overturned. And there was this shock again and this Mm -hmm. kind of frenzy across the nation. People saying, how, why, we can't believe that this this is happening, you know? Um, And for somebody who studies this, Mm -hmm. this was – none of this was a surprise. Um, Yes, it's awful. Yes, it's wrong. Um, But we cannot continue to be surprised by something that is Mm -hmm. operating the way it was designed to operate. When we think about – who wrote the laws for our country, again, we think about white, cisgendered, straight, able-bodied men saying Mm -hmm. that they deserved to have the highest positions of power, and they built a country according to that. And therefore, we still see the remnants of this structure that is well in place. It's it's not been um, completely torn down. We have tried, uh, but I think Part of the reason that it stands pretty intact is the fact that people continue to forget that it's there and mm-hmm. continue to be surprised by it and continue to think that all of these different instances of it operating the way it was designed to are somehow disconnected from each other or are somehow random rather than playing out according to plan. And so I talked to my editor um, for my first book, who I absolutely love, Bryn Clark with Flatiron books. And I said, I really want to write the trade book on patriarchy. I can't seem to find one. You know, there's a lot of books about feminism, which is amazing. We definitely need those. There's a lot of academic books that address the theory of patriarchy. But my specialty is taking from what I've learned in the academy, um, this kind of very exclusive space and creating work that is inclusive and welcoming and engaging for people so that they can look at something that seemed pretty complicated and can see that it's actually understandable and approachable Mm. and playing a role in our day-to-day lives. Um, So I'm very passionate, especially around gender and race issues, making Mm -hmm. these things tangible for people so that more people can come together in conversation. And so this book that I'm currently writing um, is tentatively titled Erased, uh, not only to honor the three women that I wrote about in the first book, but to talk Mm -hmm. about how this system almost has become erased. And mm-hmm. we've started to assume that these things are kind of the natural order. Um, we mm. continue again to be surprised by it rather than seeing it. So mm-hmm. I'm making the patriarchy visible is my goal. Wow. Okay. And <laughs> I, yeah, no, I mean, you don't think of it. I, everything you said, you know, you see a lot of books about feminism and about fighting the patriarchy, but sort of a what is this and how did we get here explainer book <laughs> feels really crucial you know yeah. i i mean what do you hope people will take away from it the biggest change i'm hoping for is that we stop asking the questions of how 
mm-hmm. and why, and we start being able to use our energy more for what are we going to do about it. Um, so that all of these different instances, whether it's mm-hmm. mothers who want to go back to work and are feeling like they're being pushed out of work somehow and they don't know why, um, and then they're sitting there thinking, am I doing something wrong? How is this happening? Why do I feel this way? You know, a lot of things that women experience, especially we've, we've been told that we just feel that way, um, <laughs> actually relate back to laws that were in place. Um, and even if that law is no longer in place, we still see companies trying to emulate uh, what was mm-hmm. in place before. So a, a direct example of this and kind of, again, tying my first book into this one, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother, Alberta Williams King, she was this well-educated woman. She had a bachelor's degree and a teaching certificate. She wanted to become an, an educator um, at the, in the Atlanta public school system. And at the time, however, there was a law called a marriage bar that made it so that married women could not work outside of the home in certain professions like teaching. Um, and so she had to make a decision when she fell in love with who would become her husband mm-hmm. um, to walk away from her career. Oh and instead, she uses this to educate her children. And this right. is why MLK Jr. is so well educated and so well resourced. He didn't mm-hmm. just, you know, pop out of nowhere fully formed. <laughs> he had an educated teacher with degrees. And this is something we can't take for granted. This is a black mm-hmm. woman in the early 1900s. This is why he becomes this revolutionary leader. But when right. we think about what would have been possible for her career um, and the many children she could have impacted had she been able to teach in a formal mm-hmm. capacity. We then go and fast forward into thinking about how many women still feel today that when they start families, people are are telling them that they either have to figure it out all on their own um, Mm -hmm. or even maybe lie, lie about the fact that you want to have children or hide the fact that you're pregnant um, because Mm -hmm. you're not going to be taken seriously. We see it in how mothers are paid less when fathers are rewarded when they have Mm -hmm. children. It's happening over and over again, and it is not random. It is linked in history. I can show you the direct tracing (laughs) of a law that has made it so that it's still the case to this day. And I just think hopefully it will give us some relief. Hopefully it will give us another tool to fight this. But Mm -hmm. especially I hope it will bring more of our fights together. You mentioned a specific law that is perpetuating some of what you're talking about in terms of women going back to work and so on. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, it was called the marriage bar. um, So you can definitely look it up. But we definitely see um, its traces very clearly um, that say, you know, well, maybe women need to focus on what they're actually meant to focus on, which is having children or staying at home or if women are um, – this is actually also relates back to women being told that they were making money for kind of um, – I think the term for it was like petty purchases that they were yes, just sort like of like – Yeah, pocket change. Yeah, yeah, they don't need to what – what are they doing with their money? It's not like they need to provide for their families. So we still see a lot of that today in our um, pay gap. Um, but motherhood is actually the largest contributor to the pay gap. I want to get a little bit into paid family leave. And lack thereof. (laughs) Um, Why is it just completely deprioritized in the U.S. compared to other countries? It's so insane. Yeah, that's another line that I'm hoping to trace um, very clearly for all of us that, again, in a system where we want to keep women in a specific role, 
we are going to make it as difficult as possible for them to leave that role, mm-hmm. um, to enter into careers. Um, so even if, okay, we've like taken away the barrier to entry and now you can work, you have to figure this out. It's not that we're going to support you as a yeah. nation. It's not that we're going to say, hey, this role of motherhood is important. So going back to what my mom said, that we value it, that we respect it. So therefore, mm-hmm. we aren't going to figure out a way for you to both do both because our system says you shouldn't do both. You shouldn't be able to. That isn't your natural, quote, natural role. Mm-hmm. So therefore, why would we provide something like parental leave? Even if we have all of this research that that tells us that it's better for parents generally. It's not even right. a right. maternal yeah. leave thing that for all parents to bond with their children and to relate this back to the mini society thing, again, in sociology, thinking of that first society also helps us to think about how that larger society will do. So the better these mini societies are doing, the better the larger society will do that they find themselves in. You know, going back to you growing up internationally, you know, and being this keen observer of U.S. culture, what is it like to have all of this information, your your education, your academic information, <laughs> your brilliant brain, um, and and your experience living in so many places and be a mother in the U.S.? <laughs> it's interesting. I think when you start to really notice all of this and... I am someone who just can't ignore it. So kind of at every turn, I'm like, that was erasure or, you know, that was sexist. (laughs) That was racism. It can be really, really – you feel almost like a conspiracy theorist a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, when I think about motherhood and the experiences of mothers in the United States versus mothers abroad, and I feel a little – stress. (laughs) stress. <laughs> it's it's yes. stressful. Um, but that's why I, I really kind of put all of that effort into my work and into my writing. And I feel this drive to help more people understand this so that it doesn't feel like a conspiracy theory. What are some policy changes or things that are in action that you're hopeful about right now? I think the fact that we're talking about paid leave more than ever is hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Vice President Kamala Harris really bringing up a lot more of the issues of families um, and really thinking about, you know, child tax credits, always, all of that is very powerful. Conversations around universal pre-K would make a huge Mm -hmm. difference. Uh, Anytime we're really thinking about, yeah, how do we make our mini societies operate better? How do we alleviate the burden? How do we say we believe that the better you do, the better all of us do. Anytime we can relate it back to our interconnectedness and our community and these kind of more feminine strengths of thinking about others rather than only yourself as an individual, those are the policies that I am most excited about. Um, And especially conversations now, which are so delayed and so behind other industrialized nations, um, but gun control. It is awful. This is the most shocking thing for me out of all the different things that surprise me as somebody who mostly grew up abroad um, and Mm -hmm. came to the United States as a teenager. Guns are so confusing here. It is bizarre to me that we are still lacking the correct um, enforcements for this. And while the other issues, you know, of racism and 
sexism and the other isms are equally as important when we're allowing Mm -hmm. people a tool to act on these problems, that's when it becomes, as we all know, incredibly dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I had to prioritize one first thing that is impacting all of this is our lack of safety. I mean, here, here, it makes no sense at all, any of it. What advice would you give to parents who are, who are in it, who are pushing for change, but also raising their, their minis and their mini societies, you know? Well, especially for mothers, I do think that it's really important to be aware of this strategy to make us not trust ourselves. Um, and I'll say a little bit more about mm. this, but mm-hmm. this is also a part of patriarchy is to make women feel like they don't know what they're talking about, to make them feel like they have to always seek um, advice or intervention mm-hmm. from um, usually like a, a male provider. Like this is like the history actually of obstetrics in the United States as well as mm-hmm. really any kind of like parenting. All of it was about like removing the um, kind of feminine leaders in this space mm-hmm. and making sure that men could take control. And so that has translated into a lot of women feeling very insecure about their decisions, feeling like anything that goes wrong is their fault entirely, feeling like they can't have any grace with themselves. Um, And then you see this play out even in how children then learn to treat their mothers um, and kind of take them for granted or like have the most anger towards mothers. Um, And so it's something that I think moms need to be a little more aware of that you're not imagining it if it feels like um, you're insecure or you don't have confidence, or um, you, uh, you're blaming yourself and you constantly think you could be doing more, when in fact, that is just another way to keep you in your place. Um, and I think when you're aware of the strategy behind this and you're kind of aware of why someone might want you to feel mm-hmm. that way, you can approach it with a lot of confidence and you can approach it with a lot of resistance and kind of this like mm-hmm. radical nature to mothering which is the kind of mother mm-hmm. that I am. And again, yes, I'm yes. I'm relatively new to mothering. But from like the beginning, I have said I won't be erased. Like if you say mm-hmm. something like your son is so strong, so much like his father, I'm going to say actually I'm very strong. You know, I deserve to be given credit for that. Yes. Or I'll, corre- I'll correct people all the time. And yes. you just have to keep pushing back against it. Or if I make mm-hmm. a mistake, I have – um, I, I forgive myself. I also take credit for that. I might say I'm so sorry, you know, and be okay with apologizing, but not mm-hmm. feeling like I'm going to carry that guilt for weeks and weeks when I see my husband make a mistake and the, the next minute he's like, all right, well, you know, I think we just have to sort of be able to be yes. aware um, that we're we're finding ourselves in something that was, again, planned, very strategic. Um, these are not happening kind of sporadically, Mm. but it gives you a first at least kind of realization that this is not you and it's not your fault. And now what are we going to do about it? What organization can I join? You know, what policy do I need to make sure um, moves Mm -hmm. forward? What do I need to be advocating for? Um, But it's just a kind of first step. It's not the solution. I'm not saying like this is an easy thing to fix, but awareness that it's about something larger than than, um, you going through this alone. 
I think that we all carry so much of the weight of, of the good stuff and the bad stuff in our families as mothers in particular. Yeah. Um, and I think this idea of radical resistance and grace is, is what's staying with me. And I feel like I'm going to carry that through. So I really appreciate you and this interview and this conversation. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for all the beautiful and thoughtful questions. Now, as promised, we're off to New Zealand. Our next guest, Isabel Banish, is the founder of Atlas of Motherhood, the first maternal wellness platform that shares the best prenatal, pregnancy, and postpartum care and support practices from around the world to empower and prepare birthing persons for birth and beyond. Before founding Atlas of Motherhood, Isabel was a clinical researcher, a journalist, an influencer, a creative director, and she's also the mother of four intercontinental kiddos. Isabel, welcome. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, We're so happy you're here. I can't believe just two years ago when we were connected on like a Zoom meetup, you had just been interviewing all these people for the past year or two because you were interested in these birth practices. You didn't know what you were going to do. And now you have an entire platform with over 50 classes. Yeah. So (laughs) insane. So impressive. Thank you. In short... How has your view of birth evolved through all you've learned and are learning through Atlas and all these experts you're working with? So I gave birth twice in the U.S. and then twice in New Zealand. And I had somewhat naively assumed that birth and postpartum and pregnancy before and after birth would be similar in the U.S. and when I moved to New Zealand. And it was so different, the care that I received during pregnancy and then after birth was so different that it really opened my eyes to other ways that we can support birth parents through the transition into motherhood. And the more that I learned and the more that I spoke with mothers and then experts around the world, the more I realized that there are so many different support and care practices that mothers in different areas are being provided and that we could really take a more holistic view of um, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum to support parents as they enter parenthood. Mm-hmm. Um, I love how you basically made my transition for me there, Isabel, because <laughs> earlier in this episode, we talked to Anna Malika Tubbs, who is an author, and she's lived in several different countries. Um, and she has had one kid and is expecting another here in the U.S., Um, But one thing that she's spoke a lot about in regards to patriarchy, which is a focus point for her, is that it being so ingrained in the U.S. culture and system has actually had some pretty negative impact on how things like paid leave and childcare and even postpartum care, pregnancy care, you know, come to be. What is your take on that, given your two experiences? In New Zealand, it's all midwifery-led model of care. And there's continuity of care throughout your pregnancy into your postpartum period. And if you look at the research, it actually shows that midwifery-led care is has better outcomes has, for both mom and child. Mm-hmm. We're actually really the first sort of generations of women to not have the support and care during postpartum. Um, and to be to have that pregnancy care be midwife led. And if you mm-hmm. look back in history, like even ancient civilizations, like ancient Greece, there's medical texts that actually 
discuss women being taken care of and a priority put on rest and recovery Mm -hmm. and nourishment and taking that time to adjust to motherhood. Mm -hmm. And that really changed. There was sort of a medicalization of birth in the 20th century that changed things, particularly in the United States. And the United States is the only developed nation to not have a paid family leave policy and, you know, uh, subsidized childcare. And Mm -hmm. there's so much research that points to how important this is, not just for um, that period in time of a new family's life, but it really has lifelong impacts. Mm -hmm. Before we get into some more of the details around what you've learned through all of the experts you've interviewed and worked with all over the world, I would love to get a little further into your specific experience in the U.S. and New Zealand. And what are some of the care practices you experienced in New Zealand beyond midwifery? You know, what are some of the things like that happened day to day, day in, day out that you think U.S. parents and birthing persons would really benefit from? So my first was a C-section. It was a planned Mm C-section because um, he ended up being breech, which looking back, I sort of knew because I kept feeling, you know, things in the places that they weren't like hiccups in the wrong spot. But Mm -hmm. my obstetrician, who I actually sought out as he was at the hospital with the lowest cesarean rate, um, because I was hoping to not That was important. Yeah, Yeah, it was important to me. And then I had a cesarean with him. And then my second birth, I had to, I wanted to have a VBAC. And so it took a lot of time to find an obstetrician that was willing to Mm. give me a VBAC because a Mm -hmm. lot of obstetricians won't actually do that for you. Mm -hmm. And a VBAC, just to clarify, is vaginal birth after cesarean. Yes. Right. And there's, you know, a potential risk of rupture. And so you need to be monitored that have fetal monitoring the entire time. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were two quite medicalized birth experiences. And then I came here and it was midwifery led. And it has sort of a, the culture here is less medicalized approach to birth. I think one Mm -hmm. that it is midwifery led, but also that you have the option of a home birth, a birth center, or the hospital with the provider that you choose. My midwife, I guess, didn't really prioritize one or the other. She just said, Mm -hmm. oh, you know, when you're in labor, let's just decide what you want to do. If you want to stay home, you can stay home. And if you want to go to the hospital, you can go to the hospital. And I'm not saying one is better than the other. It seems like it allows you to make more choices and be a little bit more in charge of your destiny. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I gave birth in the hospital all four mm-hmm. times. Okay. After birth, you get three free days at a birth center, regardless of where you've given birth. So whether it's at home, mm-hmm. at the birth center, or the hospital, most mm-hmm. people transfer to the birth center for three days where there's around the clock care by Mm -hmm. nurses, midwives, and then lactation consultants to really help Mm -hmm. support you during those first few days as a Mm -hmm. new mom or new parent. That's amazing. And then after that, there's your midwife comes to your house. So I actually 
didn't realize what a struggle it was as a new mom to walk into a pediatrician's office on the third day after giving birth. Like mm-hmm. looking back now, not having experienced that, it seems absurd that as you have like leaking breast and, you know, you're still bleeding. They tell yes. you not to lift yeah. anything. And yet you're like <laughs> lugging this really heavy um, car, seat. car seat into a pediatrician's yeah. office three days after you've just, you know, either had major surgery or you've got a huge wound where your placenta is detached. Mm-hmm. And here your midwife comes to your house. So that I think was really beneficial. And they follow mm-hmm. you for up to six weeks. Incredible. And then from there, a health nurse takes over and will continue coming to your house for two years to check in on the baby. Wow. Why do you think those differences exist? Like what what do you think is at the root of that extra care in New Zealand? And I know many other countries offer much more care in this follow-up, especially not just of the baby, but of the birthing person. Mm. You know, what is your take on why it's so different? You know, it is a government-funded health system. So the Ministry of Health is the one that's providing these sorts of services. Yeah, And I do think it's just potentially because it's not obstetrician led care Mm -hmm. that you do have that postpartum support. But also that being said, there's, you know, other countries around the world, like in China, it is the birth system itself is quite medicalized, but then Mm -hmm. the postpartum period for them, there's a really deep respect for postpartum care and mothering the mother. Mm -hmm. And you can see that in a lot of different countries and cultures around the world. So I know, um, like Bobby, Atlas of Motherhood is working hard to destigmatize maternal health and to fill in gaps around education, care, and resources. And I know I read on your website that 91% of new moms feel unprepared for their postpartum journey. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of roadmap Atlas of Motherhood offers um, mothers and birthing persons? So I've interviewed mothers and experts all around the world and discovered you know, really a whole new world of concepts when it comes to postpartum care and support and practices that are already in place in other countries that when you actually look at the research and the literature behind it, it shows that some of these practices show improvements in maternal health and outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so we've taken those practices and put them into bite-sized classes with experts all around the world so that no matter where you're based, you could incorporate these into your journey into Mm -hmm. the transition to parenthood. What are some of the postpartum services and therapies that you've discovered and learned about that aren't commonplace in the U.S.? So Belgium has pelvic floor physiotherapy. It's prescribed um, during your pregnancy. Um, So you have eight, I think it's eight sessions, four before and then five after. And these are actually Mm -hmm. prescribed by your healthcare provider And the interesting thing is, is that you think it's just, you know, a physical recovery, but Mm -hmm. it's been shown that women that have incontinence issues six months after birth are 1.5 times more likely to have experienced postpartum depression. Whoa. Yeah. So it's really a mental and physical aspect of the recovery process that, you know, seems (laughs) kind of straightforward, but something that even for kids and I didn't even know about until... I spoke with a mother in Belgium. So interesting. And in China, you mentioned this. They have, what is their, they stay home, right? For the first month. Can you describe that a little bit? 
in a lot of cultures, actually, like India, Mexico, Colombia, China, South Korea, there is this period of the time after birth, so the first 40 mm-hmm. days after birth, where they really prioritize nourishment, rest, recovery. They say the first 40 days for the next 40 years. And there are studies to show that that period in a woman's life, um, in a mother's life, is is really, really important and can have mm-hmm. lifelong implications if mm-hmm. we don't have support and rest and allow ourselves that time to adjust to motherhood. I mean, I think this is such a theme, honestly, in almost every conversation we've had on this podcast about the importance of nourishing the caregivers and especially the birthing persons and mothers and how important that is to the health of the family. But talking about nourishing, you know I've got to ask you about feeding because this is a Bobby (laughs) podcast. And I'm curious, um, in New Zealand, and even um, if you have intel about any of these other countries that you've been working with, do you find the same stigma around formula feeding that we do in the U.S.? I don't know if there's the same stigma. I think I know in both China and South Korea, the postnatal retreat centers or the hotels that a lot of the mothers go immediately from the hospital after birth and they check into these centers for two weeks, that formula feeding is quite common um, mm-hmm. because the nurses take the babies at night to mm-hmm. a nursery so that the mothers can rest after birth. Mm-hmm. Um, in a perfect world, every mother would have access to the best care possible. Every parent would have access to this kind of care. You have spent years, truly, interviewing mothers, parents, maternal care experts. What are the most important things you feel that the U.S. can learn from other cultures when it comes to taking care of birthing parents and mothers? One, we need to change the narrative on birth and bouncing back. Giving birth is such a huge physiological change. It's physical, mm-hmm. it's emotional, it's the um, changes our brain, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> our gray matter changes after birth. And so I think it's changing the narrative on bouncing back and becoming who we were before to really allowing that time to adjust to parenthood. And policies like paid family leave and access to childcare. So mm-hmm. parents can take that time to adjust and are not forced back to do it all immediately. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I want to stick on this idea or this practice that fathers slash non-birthing parents are getting three months of leave. You know, what benefits do we see when a government is actually acknowledging that both parents need this kind of leave? Well, when you're involved in, you know, the day-to-day care in early childhood with your child, you're more likely to be comfortable and more involved throughout their entire, you know, 18 years or however long they're, you know, at mm-hmm. home with you. <laughs> 25. <laughs> yeah, <way> longer. <laughs> um, and it is, gives a more equal division of labor. So mm-hmm. it, you know, gives more opportunity for birth parents because mm-hmm. if they're not carrying so much of the load and also the mental load of parenthood and it's more equally divided then they have more opportunities uh, in their careers. And so it makes a really huge difference when you start Mm -hmm. 
with the idea that both parents are going to be have an equal division of labor when it comes to parenthood. This is I have so many more questions about all of these different countries and all of these experts you've spoken to. But this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us, Isabel. Thank you. And um, can you tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find Atlas and all that good stuff? Yeah, you can find us on our website at atlasofmotherhood.co or you can follow us on Instagram at the Atlas of Motherhood. I'm so grateful for these conversations with Anna and Isabel. I learned a lot. I hope you enjoyed it too. And I'm excited to continue this conversation about paid family leave in the U.S., so stay tuned for more on that. Be sure to follow Bobby on Instagram at Bobby for all Milk Drunk updates and sign up for the Milk Drunk newsletter at milk-drunk.com. Milk Drunk is powered by Bobby, hosted by me, Angelica Temple, and produced by Beth Rowe, Mary Kelly, and the team at Full Picture Productions. If you're liking what we're shaking here at Milk Drunk Pod, be sure to subscribe. You won't want to miss a thing. Also, if you have topics you want to hear discussed or have a hot parenting take, our DMs are always open. 